And so here we go. We're in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Last week, whenever we were together, we, we saw Christ mocked, ridiculed, flogged. We saw Him beaten and crucified. He was hung on the cross, and then He was put into the tomb. And then that's where we left it last week. And we thought about six reflections on the cross and, and what that means for us. And so that sermon is out there. I'm not going to rehash everything. That's the beauty of technology now is that we do have those messages recorded and we have podcasts. And so you can go back and you can check that out. I can give you the notes. But here's where we pick up. Last week we ended and it was pretty, pretty dark, pretty grim. And it says this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. This would be John, by the way. And said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw, y'all look at this, he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he, Jesus, must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. She said, sorry, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. So that's our text for today. The title of this is just simply the resurrection that they saw. Because that's what you and I have to understand is that this is not some mythical story that some people have dreamed of, but the Lord was seen. She clung to Him. We're going to see Thomas next week who says, oh, I need to see the scars. I need to put my feet... I mean, he, they, want, they experienced Him. Jesus ate with Him. This is a real thing that actually happened. But for today, we're focusing on what they saw. And this is what they saw. Y'all, they saw an empty tomb and they saw the resurrected Lord. What you and I gather to sing about, they experienced. But here's what I'm afraid of is that as Christians today, we've kind of disconnected ourselves so much. Like we love the truth of it, but let's get real. We don't really get it in the moment because it's just such a part of who we are. And the longer we're a Christian, the more prone we are to develop this spiritual amnesia where we do something like this. Well, yeah, the Lord was resurrected. Of course He sits on high. But we've lost that awe. 
We've lost the wow factor of what it actually means. That Christ was beaten and buried and died. That He was rejected by men. That He became sin and took on the full wrath of God and was buried in that darkness and in those depths. And then He rose again. Like, Let's just not forget that, okay? So that's what today's about is actually seeing that. So only two points today. Okay, only two points in the sermon, but point two has two subpoints, so three. Okay, here we go. So the empty tomb. Now look and just just look at the empty tomb. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. Okay, so what that means is um, that it was still dark outside. Okay, I'm not being facetious. I'm saying that this is like an early morning. It could have also been in the middle of the night because the way that the Jews accounted time just so you know, is on Saturday evening, which is the Sabbath, whenever the sun went down, then it began the next day from sunset to sunset. So we know that it's dark. I'm not, I wasn't trying to make like a, a glib statement. Like she's there earlier than anybody else, okay? But it's still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and she went to get Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. This is John who's writing the gospel, who writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in Revelation. She said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter, so she sees an empty tomb. She goes to get help. So Peter went out with the other disciple and, as they, were go- and they were going to the tomb. I'm sorry. Both of them were running. Okay, take a look at that. They're running. So there's something immediate about what's going on. There's, there's a concern. But the other disciple outran Peter. We're going to look at that deep theological truth right there, that one outran the other, and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but didn't go in. Right? So they see the empty tomb. They don't go in. Simon Peter, though, he came following him. He goes into the tomb. He went into the tomb, is what Scripture says. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, so what John saw, Peter sees, he sees them closer now. And the face cloth, um, and just to tell you real quick, the way that they would do this is there was a body cloth that was wrapped around the body, and then there was a face cloth that was wrapped separately. And so it's, it's good to know that they were separate. It's as though the body has literally just been lifted right out of it, okay? It's not like someone came in and ransacked the place um, and piled it all together, but, but they are separate. That's why it mentions a face cloth, Okay which had been on Jesus' head, I'm back in verse 7, not lying with the linen cloths, but it was folded up in its place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, see, he notes he got there first, he also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand Scripture that he must rise from the dead. So there's this moment right now. Then the disciples went back to their homes. That's where we're going to stop for right now. Okay, So really looking at that empty tomb, but there's actually some good things that we can glean real quick. Number one, okay, something to look at is what I already mentioned. This happens on Sunday, right? So this is good for us to think through. We're, the Old Testament has a Sabbath. They worshiped God on the Sabbath. It was the Lord's Day. They couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. Then why are we gathering on Sunday mornings? From the time that the Lord was resurrected, and we see this right here, This begins to take place on Sunday. And as you go through the New Testament, they would gather on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday. And so we're carrying on that tradition that whenever Christ was resurrected, He shifted not only our salvation and our hope, but He also shifted the law. And it went from being a law that was legalistic to a law of grace, but He also did something fundamental in how we worship and when we worship. So early believers, those who are part of what were called the way, or Christians, which were little Christ's, 
those early followers began meeting on the first day of the week because it was a time to come together and not just celebrate Christ's death, but to celebrate His resurrection. That's the tension that you and I walk in every Sunday and every day of our lives. It is because of His death, it is because of His resurrection, we walk in that confident hope. So, that's just answering real quick. It happened on Sunday. Next thing, look at the stone. Okay? So note the, note the day of the week. These are, these are some really quick things. And then we're going to really look at the word saw. Because I don't know if you caught it as I was reading, but they saw a whole lot. They looked in. They saw. They saw. They saw. We're going to get to those. But look at that stone. There's a massive stone that sealed the tomb. Okay? We don't get to do this anymore really so much. Right? We're accustomed to coffins and the body being laid in a coffin and the coffin being put into the ground. The closest thing that you and I have... Um, to imagine this would probably be the burial vaults. If you're walking through a cemetery and you see the vaults that are above ground, and then there is a door to those. This is the closest thing that we have to it, except that it, t- it does tell us in Scripture that, uh, that it was carved into a rock, into a stone. It was carved into limestone. So this is a much more organic tomb than what you and I can picture. But it's also big enough, keep in mind, that um, and this tomb is big enough that there is a table where the body was laid. Peter is able to come in, and John is able to come in, and they're able to, to stand there. So this is bigger than what you and I are used to. There's a stone big enough that is able to seal that covering. Look at the purpose of the stone, Matthew 27. So flip to your left, Matthew 27. There is a lot at stake with the burial of Jesus. Because Jesus was telling them, if you'll remember, that He would die, but He would be resurrected. And so much was, there was so much love and adoration for Christ, not from the Pharisees, but from the people, that that the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they were worried that somebody would come steal the body. And if this happened, then there could be a rebellion, there could be an insurrection. These are all realities that we're not going to get into today, but there there is that issue of, of the body and what was going on. But what we know from Scripture is Matthew 27, verse 62. Here's where this stone comes from. And I'm going to come back to this stone at the very, very end of it all. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. So this is after Jesus has died. And they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive after three days, I will rise. Therefore, Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So I'm trying to say this is a massive stone. The intent of this stone is to make sure that Jesus does not come out and nobody gets in. Like this is not something where... Um, I remember, goodness, a year ago or a couple of years ago, Mark wanted to get this huge stone removed from his backyard. But we were able to come up with an idea that thankfully we never had to actually do. We didn't do that, did we? Okay, good. Because um, I saw the stone, I was like, oh my. Okay. <laughs> we never had to do that. But this was still a stone this big, right? We're talking a massive stone that's meant to seal the one man who could upend the entire Roman world. This is a stone that's going to seal a covering that allows you and I to come in and out of a tomb if we so wanted to visit those who were in it. 
They have to. They probably have to stoop to come in. But it is a large tomb, big enough for you and I to be able to walk into. Therefore, this is a massive stone. And what Mary finds whenever she gets there at night is that this stone has been rolled away. Okay, so just just keep that in mind. But I do want to look at this. Look at the confusion. Okay, so a lot of doing um, expository preaching is making sure we move through and we understand the text as the early believers understood the text. And I think that one of the things we have to note is Mary, John, and Peter seem really confused in this moment. We don't, because we're like, obviously it's the resurrection. Let's keep going, right? Because we know this. We know what we know. But put yourself in that moment to really understand the gravity of what's going on for them. And it's this. Here's Mary Magdalene, who was demon-possessed, and Jesus cast demons out of her, and she's been following him. She's watched him crucified. So the man that she has deeply loved and that who freed her of these demons, she's going at night, obviously pretty, pretty broken and, and uh, I'm sorry, pretty heartbroken, and she finds an empty tomb, and the body's just flat out gone. Like, put yourself in that moment. And then she goes and she tells... Peter and John, Peter who denied Jesus, and whenever he denied him, Jesus looked at him, the crow uh, caused three times, and then Peter sees him let off. And then there's John who sees Christ up on the cross, and they've walked life with him intimately for the last three years. They're going to pay homage to him and to see the body, and the tomb is empty. There's just confusion. They don't know what you and I know, and we cannot forget that. So what do they experience? They're experiencing confusion that this one guy who said that I will rise again, that I am the Messiah, I am the one that God has told you about, that I'm going to lay down my life, this God, this man, they're going in his tomb, his body is absolutely gone. I mean, this is what's really going on. This is a historical moment, not a theological truth is what I want us to put ourselves into. It would be like if you were coming to my grave, like something has happened and and you come to my grave because all of you would visit every week my grave, right? Just to keep it decorated and trimmed up. But you come, and whenever you come, the, it's been dug up, the coffin's empty. Imagine, imagine the hurt, the confusion, the despair. What in the world is going on? That's what's going on. This is someone who they loved, but... But not, not three days earlier, they had denied him and they had fled and they had left him all alone. And now they wanna, they're heartbroken and they come back and there's just an empty tomb. And so they're at this grave. They have no knowledge. Why? Because it tells us that in verse 9, until this point, they didn't get it. They just didn't get it. Here was a good man who had died, is what it came down to in this moment. If that's all the biographies of Jesus were, was that he was a good teacher, he was a good prophet, he was a good man, he had good lessons. If that's all it was, and that's all that John recorded in, the, in, a, in his gospel stopped in chapter 19, man, it'd be a good story, he'd be a good man, but he would not be the king. But he is resurrected. And so there's that going on, and now this great theological truth, just to put it all in context, and then we'll, we really will get into some good things I want you to, to note. The great foot race. Notice the deep theology of the great foot race. What happens here? Quote, both of them were running together, Peter and John, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That is deep theology. You know what it tells me? John is faster than Peter. 
That's it. I just wanted you to know that. I felt like John wanted us to know that because he also noted that the one who got there first, a little bit later, it's like John has this one moment where he's like, hey, just so you know, Chas and I ran a 5K together, and I beat her by 0.4 seconds. Okay? It's just like that moment where he's like, by the way... The, the, the one who Jesus loved. That's true. That is true. That is true. John always notes that he is the one whom Jesus loved. Um, it's just a really fun moment for me every time I read it. What's more fun is whenever you open commentaries on this passage. One commentator, one theologian, noted that John probably won because, just so you know, Peter was likely older and heavier due to his age. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, really? No, John's just faster. Okay? That is your deep theology for today. I have no more to say except that John outran Peter. And to study the scripture, we need to know that John was faster for one reason or another. We should know that. Okay, now we're going to move on. All right, now, let's, uh, I want you to know, hey, where do our Sundays come from, really? That's where it comes from. Don't forget that this is not some little stone that that a few of us men could get together and move. This is something incredibly massive. It was meant to stop a rebellion and an insurrection. The, their mindset, their motive behind putting a rock so big and a guard there, remember they said, his disciples will come steal the body. And if they steal the body, then the first or the second fraud will be worse than the first. In other words, if they take his body, then people are going to believe that he really was resurrected and there's no way that we're going to be able to squash all of his lies from before. Right? The Sanhedrin did not believe he said who he was, that he was who he was. And so that's, that's that stone. They get there and they're in the confusion of an empty tomb. And we know what's going on. But I call that the resurrection they saw, and the emphasis is on the word saw. There's actually three Greek words for saw, like for seeing. And, and you might be thinking, big deal. No, it's a really big deal. It's really cool. Okay, this is one of those times where our translation fails to show us the fullness of what's really going on. And I want to walk you through those. And then whenever you go throughout the week, then you will have extra trivia that you can share. Look at this with me. Look at verse 4, um, 4 through 7. I want to focus on, first off, what John and Peter saw. And this is where we're going to break down into the Greeks. And I promise you, this is, this is pretty cool to see. Cool according to what I... What I think is cool. Not your cool. My cool. Both of them. It says both of them were running together. And God's word says, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And here's how, here's what we know of scripture, y'all. That God breathed his spirit into men to pen the words that he wanted written into his word for his believers today. So God moved men to write his word that we're studying today. And look at the word saw. It's just translated saw all through these next ones. And stooping to look in, John, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place. And I, I, forgot, to, I forgot to include this one right here in my notes. Um, we're getting to verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he, look at that, saw and believed. So there's a progression of seeing. Okay, So look what we get in the original language um, is that there are three types of seeing and I'm going to explain them to you and it's going to make total sense. Not that you have to remember these things, but they are kind of cool words. If nothing else, I would, I would note 
that there's a progression of seeing that does apply to you and me in our everyday lives. Okay, so we've already established so they walk in and that this is kind of like a crime scene, if for lack of a better word. They, they roll in, the tomb is empty, uh, the rock has been pushed aside, depending on some of the Gospels. Um, there are guards who are afraid or sleeping. All this is going on. They go in, they see it all. And, uh, and here's what we see. In verse 5, whenever we get to verse 5, so take a look at that. Stooping to look in, he, John, saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And we're like, okay, cool, he saw it. The Greek word there is blepo. It's just a cool word, blepo. All right, so B-L-E-P-O. You are totally amazed by that, and that's okay. Blepo in that context means to see clearly. So right now, you blepo. Like, you can see me clearly. Like, you, you see me, right? I look out, I see leaves, there's blepo. So what it says is that he gets there, he looks in, he blepos, he sees the linen cloth lying there. So that's blepo. The next one is theorio. Okay? So the next verse says that Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he, we translate, saw the linen cloth lying there. And notice how that one goes a little bit further in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, folded up in a place by itself. So the word is the Oreo. So it's T-H-E, the, like, or the, I'm sorry, the. And then the last part of it is Oreo, which are the best cookies in the world. So O-R-E-O, so the Oreo. Here's what the, the Oreo literally means. It translates to, to see and observe. So there's a deeper seeing that Peter's going through right here. So John gets there, he looks in, and he goes, oh, I see the cross lying there. Peter actually goes into the tomb, and he's seeing them, and he's observing, and he's contemplating. He's trying to piece it all together. In other words, something's, something's not clicking just yet, but he knows he's close to something. Sometimes whenever, whenever you and I are walking, or we meet like this, we have blepo. Like, we're just seeing it. You walk into to a kid's messy room, and you go, blepo. Okay? <laughs> Sounds like a curse word, but you see it, and you walk out. Okay? But sometimes... And this happens, happens in my house. We have those moments of the Oreo where we're kind of looking and we're like, okay, I see the mess. But if this goes there and this goes there and we move this here, and then we, we actually start to, to think a little bit deeper on it. There's that moment in Peter where he's trying to piece some things together. He sees them clearly, but he's gone a little bit further. And then there's this word. Look at verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and now look at this. He saw and believed. That word is Iden. It's E-I-D-E-N. Iden. You're still unmoved by this. That's okay. Okay. Iden means this. To see with understanding. So there's a moment where John sees it. He's, he just pieces it together quickly. Peter goes in. And then it says that John goes into the tomb. And while he's looking at it, he has Iden. He sees it with understanding. Everything all of a sudden goes like that. And what does he do? He believes. Notice the correlation between, between Iden and believe. Okay? You read the English translations. They saw it. They saw it. They saw it. And we're like, yeah, we see that. Good. Let's keep going. This is one of those let's stop. They saw it for a moment. They began to think more. And then they understood it. So those words, and I can shoot them to you later, but he sees with understanding. 
everything that they did not understand that was a mystery that was kind of veiled to them, John has that moment whenever the light just shines and he sees and he believes. Okay, so the question is, okay, well, why does that matter? I want to be very careful here. A lot of why we preach the way we do is so that God's Word says to us what it said to them. We never want to take Scripture and make it say what it was never meant to say. So we hold to that pretty tight. At the same time, there are moments in Scripture whenever we can glean a truth that's very applicable for our life. And so that's what I want to look at is, if we take this, it seems like there is a passing sight. I'm putting it into our language, there's a passing sight. Our eyes pass over it, we see it. We know what we saw, we saw it. Then there's like a pausing sight where, where we're looking and then we stop on this to, to contemplate for a moment. And then there's what I'm just calling a pressing sight where we see something in such a way that it leads us to a conviction. Okay, so are you with me? So I want to have a pastoral moment from this text with those truths. And it's this. That you and I, church, run the same, uh, same danger as they might have had because we just give passing sight to the things of God. Like we read Scripture, we do our quiet time, let's call it quality time. That might help us, right? To, we don't want to have a quiet time anymore, we want to have a quality time. This is something we want to glean. But, but we sit down, we read the Word, we have that passing, like we see it. But to be honest, man, we just got to keep going. All right, or we see the person uh, right over here that we're supposed to be ministering to, and we see them, but we don't really give it a second. We just keep on going. We have this passing sight as Christians. What if we like quit rushing through our Christian lives, so ready to complete the plan, so ready to just knock it off the list, so ready to get from point A to point B, and we would actually step back and slow down and wait on the presence of God? Okay, so let's take that into the the context. In other words, I want us to not, not just see the truths of God that we say we believe, but like, what if we actually believed them? What if we saw the truth and believed it? For example, you and I know that God is for us. And if God is for us, then what can, what can come against us? Neither death, nor hunger, nor nakedness, nor pestilence, nor sword, nor angel, nor demon. Like nothing can remove us from the love of God. We know that. But have we like really dwelt on it in such a way that whenever we're lying there and the world seems to be falling apart... We have no fear because our God is near. No, we, we kind of doubt those things. We have a tendency to, to doubt in the dark what God has shown us in the light. We know that the shepherd is always with us. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil for I am with you. And I'll prepare a banqueting table in the midst of your enemies. Like we know that right now and then something will happen. And whenever that thing does happen, we're sitting there going, God, where are you? Well, the truth is he's right there and we know that. Or we'll see something that's going on. And so we'll see it. We'll see it quickly. And as soon as also that, that we don't want to just see the truths of God, we want to move to a point of belief. And here's how we do that. We need to learn how to, how to linger longer in God's presence and trust it. And it comes down to two things. One of them, it's a spiritual matter. Goodness gracious. Okay. Sorry, y'all. Okay. Did you keep your bugs over there? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> All right, yeah, uh, you know what? Let's do this. Lord, would you help us to, to attend to your work? We have, uh, we, we have your nature, your creation. We're doing your church, though. So, Lord, would you help us to uh, uh, attend to your word and remove those things which would distract us? Um, Lord, be with us. Amen. All right, let's try this and uh, let's see how we do. 
here's what I'm trying to get at. I pray that we have Iden sight. I pray that we have Iden. I pray that we have that, that side that leads to believe and that we don't just have blepo. And that's going to come down to two, two major things. One of them is a spiritual thing and one of them is a time thing. The spiritual is this, that the Spirit can open our eyes which are blind. And that's what we need to pray for. We need to be praying that God will help us to understand, that He would help us our minds and our hearts to, to not just like pass by this, but for it to actually take root. Because that gets into the work that God does. And I want you to understand like His faithfulness towards you is true. Whenever He said, ask anything in My name and I will give it to you if it's in accordance with the Father's will. And I'm not saying these things are wrong, but hear me. We take that truth and we apply it to sickness and anxiety and worries and fears. Those are good. Cast all your anxieties on Him for He cares for you. <coughs> but one of the greatest things that we need to be praying for is God, teach me to know you more. Amen. God, draw me into your presence. Teach me to pray. Like that's, that's what I'm saying. These are great. Don't get me wrong. But they're not full enough for what He wants. What does He want? He wants His people to know Him. And it's not all on us. Like a simple prayer. Whenever you sit down to read, I, I do this. Lord God, help me to understand what you're trying to show me today. You think that that's not in accordance with the Father's will, that He wants His people to know Him? Absolutely, He's going to help you understand Scripture. Lord, help me to pray more. Absolutely, He will honor that. That's in accordance with His will. These things are great to pray about. Absolutely, Lord, if it's in your will, would you please heal this person? Would you please give them strength? Absolutely. But also, you know what we as a church need to do? Lord, teach me to pray. Lord, give me compassion. Lord, help me to understand your word. Lord, help me to value your word and to find time for it. Lord, help me not to rush past the things of who you are. Like those things, he will do it. And he will move you from blepo. And He will move you into Eden. He will lead you to belief. Why? Because you're His child. You're His person. And He wants to see you grow more like Him. He will do the work. The question is, my fear is, is that what we want? It's not always a priority for us. And even whenever it is a priority, it doesn't take the priority in our prayer life. Because what we like to do is, Lord, I got this. Like, you saved me. Thank you. You redeemed me. I'll show you what I got. You know what we got? A lot of failure and weakness and sin. That's what we bring to the table. So I'm praying that we will we'll be more adamant about praying that God would grow us. You know how humbling that is? Lord, you saved me. You brought me back out of nothing. I need you to like keep growing me because I can't do it. I need you to help me understand your word because I don't get it. I need you to like give me a heart to pray because I don't want to. Like Everything that we bring to Him is really showing that we absolutely need Him. So as you read Scripture, like on your own or, or even today, and, and we have this moment, you might have blepo, you might have theorio, but we really want to see Iden. We want to, and that Iden, that belief, that conviction comes from God. That's what happens. It's not like John in this moment went, figured it out, brilliant. No. God showed him the light. God shone in his heart and gave to them the remembrance of all that he had said. He did exactly what he said he would do. And he brought John to belief. So, let's be more adamant about our faith and, um, and make, make that the priority of our prayers. The reason 
that we probably don't believe as much as we want to. In other words, is because we haven't sought to believe as much as we need to. Okay? That all happens in prayer. Okay, the other one, second thing that we're gleaning from here is if we want to see and, and grow in that way, this is, this is really a time matter. We have to learn how to linger in the Word a lot longer than what we tend to do. And I'm guilty of this. I will go into my office. I will read. I'm like, okay, I got 10 minutes. Oh, I can, I can definitely squeeze in my reading today. Man, because, and I became aware of this a couple of weeks ago. I was talking to Jackson. I'm like, when you talk about quiet times, he's like, I'm going to be honest. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. He's like, I thought it's like where you just find like a book and you get a quiet place. And I'm like, oh, failure as a pastor dad. Okay. But quiet time doesn't quite fit. It needs to be quality time. You know what I really value with my family? It's not quiet time. I value quality time. That's one of my love languages. I like quality time. I like knowing that whenever I'm with them, their, their presence is there, my presence is there, whether it's five minutes or 15 or an hour. Um, then I need a break for me time. Okay? <laughs> but listen to what the psalmist says. This, he said, One thing I ask and I would seek, that I may dwell in your courts forever. Like the psalmist has such a desire for the Lord. He wants to dwell there. He doesn't want this moment to end. He wants this moment with the Lord to be forever, to dwell in those courts. And I would say that the same thing needs to be true of us. If we want to quit forgetting the truths of God, then we need to learn to dwell in the truths of God. But it takes time. Notice there seems to be a good progression between John saw it, Peter saw it a little bit longer, John had a longer moment and he believed. So we need to learn how to linger longer in the Word, that we would dwell there. Now, Spurgeon had this quote, and his quote was that sermonettes create Christianettes. In other words, short sermons create weak Christians. That's why we always try to preach for an hour and a half every week, is I want you to be strong Christian. But I do think, I do think that you can preach a very powerful 15 to 20 minute sermon that absolutely glorifies God. But if our daily diet of the words is minimal or small, then what impact can that truth have in our life? Right? So, so I want to take those, those truths that we see with seeing with Bleppo and Theorio and Iden and say that those same things apply to us too. That for the truth to really enlighten and change and, and make an impact, it's number one spiritual. We need to just pray for it. You want to defeat sin? Pray that God will help you to defeat sin. You want to understand the Word? Pray that He will help you to understand the Word. You want to be a prayer warrior and have and be able to pray like this person over there? It takes practice, but it also takes asking God to give you that heart. You want to have a heart for missions? Guilty right here. Then I need to pray, God, grow a heart for missions. Like it's a spiritual matter which puts it into His realm and not ours. You and I have absolutely nothing to prove to our God because He sent His Son on our behalf. So therefore, we need to grow in Him. And He will grow us. Okay? And then the other thing is time. Make time to linger longer for God. All right, that will move us from Bleppo. It will move us into Theorio, and it will get us to Iden so that we can see and that we can believe. What did they see? What led to their belief? It was the empty tomb. Like the heart of this passage, I'm coming all the way back to it, and then we're going to finish this, finish this up. The heart of this passage is not seeing. The heart of the passage is that the tomb is empty. They finally saw it. You and I, if we sit here today and we say, absolutely, I mean, it's God. He's risen from the dead. And there's no doubt in us. Then we have Iden. We see it with Iden. We see it. We believe it. We know it. Now, what did Mary see? 
This is a shorter point. Go back to, to verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Okay, so imagine, don't, don't go too fast on this one. Do you see how stricken with grief she is? She goes in to a tomb at night, and she sees two angels seated, sitting in the tomb and the body gone. And they're like, Why are you weeping? She sees two angels, and she's like, They've taken the Lord. Her grief was so deep, the anguish so present in her, that she's not even moved by the presence of angels. Whenever what we see in Scripture is that when angels are present, people are bowing. That's, I'm trying, these are real emotions with real people. She loves her Lord. She's not trying to figure it out. She's just saying, where's my God? Like, what have you done with Him? Okay, and so... She said to them, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turns around. She sees Jesus standing, but she doesn't even know that it's Jesus. She said to her, why, woman, why are you, you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And thinking that he was a gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Okay, so her grief also, she can't see Jesus. But by the way, this is not uncommon. In fact, it tells us, I put it here, Luke twenty four sixteen is always a mysterious passage for me. Jesus is walking on the, the, the road to Emmaus. He's walking alongside other disciples, and he's talking to them, and they have no idea that it's Jesus. It's because in Luke 24, 16, it says, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jesus had this, has this mystery about his resurrected state to where Mary, who's walked closest with him, the disciples who know him intimately, when they see him, they don't even know him until he says, now you can. And then they see him. Okay, But so much so is her grief, so deep is it, that she has kind of an, also an illogical request of the gardener. She says, give me the body and I'll go bury it. How is she going to move the body? Where is she going to move it to? How will she carry it? Where will she take it? She doesn't care. All she cares about is the presence of her Lord. Right? And so there's this moment. I'm trying to keep the, the reality of the text right there. Okay. And then he says, Jesus said to her, Mary, and at the call of her name, she turned and she said to him, Aramaic, teacher. There's only one way that the Lord could speak to her. There's only one way he could say her name, that she would know in all the world that that was her God. There's an intimacy with Jesus and God in her in that moment. And she knows him immediately because he says her name the right way. Now, can we glean spiritual truths? Absolutely. Like that he knows each of our names and when our Lord speaks to us, we were like, we could, we could go there. I don't think that that's what the point of this one is right here. She sees the resurrected Lord. This is not a figment of her imagination. This is not a, a, a ghost. This is not her out of her mind. She actually embraces him to the degree where he says, quit clinging to me and go tell the disciples, I did it. I'm here. I'm real. And I'm going to ascend. So what is, they see the empty tomb. She sees the empty tomb. But you know what she really sees? You know what she really gets? She sees Jesus resurrected in the flesh, alive again, fully affirming that he is all that he said he is and that he did all that he said he would do and that God has fulfilled his work in Jesus Christ. Like that's what she gets to see, the fullness of Jesus. And it really affirms, I'm going to throw like four verses at you. 
In John 10, 18, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. In John 2, 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. In Matthew 16, 21, Jesus says from that, or I'm sorry, the word says from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and scribes, and that he must be killed. That was all last week and this. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. She's seeing that. She's seeing what nobody else gets to. She looks at him. She says, Gardner, what'd you do with him? Oh my goodness, you're the Lord. And she embraces him. She falls at his feet. And then Acts 2.24 is our final verse. Peter says, God raised him up from the dead, loosing the pangs of death, watch this, because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. That's what she sees. There's a, there's a, a great quote in a commentary. I'm coming back to that massive stone, y'all. It says that the tomb was not open to let Jesus out. I think that that's what I've always assumed. Well, it was a stone rolled away to let Jesus out. He has all authority and power and dominion. He moves where he wants to move, especially in a post-resurrected state. He appears behind locked doors in the presence of his disciples. He doesn't need a stone moved away. The commentary said the the tomb was not open to let Jesus loose, but so that the world might see. And that's where we are right now. That's what Mary saw. That's what Peter and John see. And that's what we're going to see over over next week. The next sermon is I'm just calling it vignettes, which is a fancy word for like portraits or glimpses or scenes. But vignettes of the resurrected king. Because he goes to Thomas and he goes to the disciples and he goes to Peter and he goes to John. And, and each one is this really quick moment. And we get to see him. The tomb wasn't open so that Jesus could come out. The tomb was open so that people may come in. We come in to this place today or out to this place because we're outside, but you get it. We come into this gathering today so that we can sing and rejoice in this resurrected King. This is what our life is all about. It's about nothing else. Our careers are not what they're about. Our families are not what they're Those are our great God things that He's given us, but what your life and my life about is about is that Christ died on the cross for you and me, and He is bringing us home. He is resurrected. He is fully ascended. We're His people. And some will just blepo that. They'll see it. Some will have the Oreo and they'll see it and they're, gonna, they're wrestling with it. But you and I, if we're believers, we saw it, we believed, and we are His. We're going to sing to that resurrected King. And I pray that we don't pass over the resurrection because we're so used to it, but we learn to dwell in the presence of the King and what He has done. Y'all pray with me. Lord God, would You, would you call our voices out as we sing to you one more time. Would you help us to dwell in the truth that this is a historical moment. It's a theological moment. It's a spiritual moment, but it's a historical moment. You came out of the tomb. You are not able to be held by death, is what Scripture says, that God raised Jesus from the dead, loosed the pangs of death because death could not hold Him. God, what power do you have? Help me to trust you more. And Lord, help us to see the beauty of your resurrection before we leave this place and as we go throughout this week. Lord, we love you. Amen.